Time in this conception is not destructive, all-consuming, and does not simply consist of fleeting, imperceptible moments. The Jew walks alongside Maimonides, listens to Rabbi Akiva. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 38, A Brief History of Biblical Time. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Time travel is a popular theme in cinematic entertainment, but I had always assumed that it was limited to the realm of fiction. So it was with surprise that some years ago I came upon a headline in the New York Times, Time Travelers to Meet in the Not-Too-Distant Future. The story described a conference on time travel being held at MIT. The organizers, led by a graduate student named Amal Dorai, invited a number of prominent scientists to describe the conceptual aspects of traveling through time, but here there was a twist, which was that the organizers also invited anyone from the future with the ability to travel back into the past to take part in the discussion. We are told, quote, a roped-off area will create a landing pad, so materializing time travel machines will not crash into trees or dormitories, end quote. The conference's organizers reason, logically, that if at some point in the future time travel becomes a possibility, then someone from the 30th or 553rd century could visit the discussion in order to confirm that these computer geeks are not theorizing in vain. Said Mr. Durai, quote, I would hope they would come with the idea of showing us that time travel is possible, end quote. How, the article asks, will those in the future find out about the conference that had already taken place so they could visit it in the past? Mr. Durai, we learned, came up with a way to invite those born centuries in the future. Quote, write the details down on a piece of acid-free paper and slip them into obscure books in academic libraries, end quote. Durai apparently understood that the odds of arrivals from the future were slim, but he told the Times, Quote, if you can spare one Saturday night, there's a very slight chance that this could be the biggest event in human history, end quote. It is an amusing article, but interestingly, Mr. Durai assumes that time travel may be invented centuries in the future. But what if, ladies and gentlemen, time travel actually originated in the past, long ago, with the composition of the Torah? What if time travel lies at the heart of the Jewish calendar and of the Jewish conception of time itself? Our next passage in Leviticus introduces the various forms of Moadim, appointed times of Judaism. The chapter begins with a seeming redundancy. Chapter 23, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The appointed times of the Lord which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my appointed times. Six days shall work be done, but in the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest. A holy convocation ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Then, after this reference to Shabbat, the Sabbath, suddenly the Bible seems to repeat itself by introducing the entire concept of sacred time again. Verse 4, These are the appointed times of the Lord, even holy convocations which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at evening is the Lord's Pesach. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. 
For the rest of the chapter, the focus is on Israelite holidays rather than the Sabbath. What apparently is occurring here is the distinguishing between two types of sacred moments, Sabbath and then the festivals. Both involve the sanctification of time, but they express different ideas, as well as contrasting cosmic phenomena. The Sabbath existed long before the people of Israel came into being. It is sanctified by God himself at the conclusion of creation and is an eternal commemoration of creation. Its sanctity suffuses the world every seventh day with the setting of the sun. Meanwhile, the dates of the holidays are connected to the biblical lunar calendar, which follows the waxing and waning of the moon. Lunar cycles are around 29 and a half days, thus the holidays that occur in the middle of the Jewish month, such as Pesach, or Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, coincide around the same time as a full moon. The Jewish observance of two separate sorts of sacred time, the Shabbat on the one hand and the holidays founded upon the lunar cycle on the other, represents the distinct but intertwining aspects of Jewish existence. At least one central theme of the Sabbath, creation, is universal, whereas what the holidays mark is covenantal. Jews have always considered themselves both apart from, but also a part of, the world. The Jewish people is chosen, but our chosenness is also linked to our connection with and our monotheistic message to humanity. Thus, the Sabbath bespeaks, at least in part, our universal mission. The holidays and the lunar Jewish calendar speak to our covenantal state. As Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch once put it, the Sabbath is the signature of our human existence and the new moon the symbol of a particular Jewish calling. Whereas the Sabbath's fundamental focus on creation lends a universal dimension to the biblical focus of the day, the profound particularity of the holidays are by and large linked to two profoundly particularistic themes, moments in Jewish history and the land of Israel. The holidays are specifically scheduled around the agricultural cycle of the Holy Land. Thus, Pesach, what is often called Passover, coincides with the ripening of the barley harvest and the onset of spring. Its celebration is therefore followed immediately with an offering from the new crop of barley. Only then is the new grain permitted to Israelites. Verse 14, And ye shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor green ears until that day that ye bring this offering unto your God. Fifty days later brings us to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, coinciding with the onset of the wheat harvest, and thus a ritual centering on loaves of wheat flour takes place in the temple. Verse 17, Ye shall bring from your habitations two loaves of sifted fine flour as an uplifted offering of two-tenths of measure. Then, some months later, Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, takes place. It is a sort of thanksgiving, as the harvest concludes and all Israel rejoices in the temple with the symbols of Israelite agriculture. Verse 40, And ye shall take on the first day the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Through these offerings and rituals, at every moment in the cycle, Israel is reminded to see God rather than the false nature gods of surrounding societies as the true source of their sustenance. But the Bible's concern is not only preventing paganism, but also undercutting Israelite arrogance. 
lest the farmer glory in what he has produced. Israel at these very times is instructed to mark the central moments of Jewish history. In the spring, the Exodus is recalled. The Feast of Weeks coincides with the anniversary of the Sinai Revelation. And at the end of the harvest, when the farmer is most likely to accredit himself for his achievement, he is obligated to recall in the Feast of Booths the sojourn in the desert and to realize thereby that all comes from God's grace. But what is occurring here is much more than commemoration or recollection. Let us, for example, take Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, the holiday of the harvest. Its observance is, at least superficially, striking and strange. After all, the abundance of harvest, one might think, should be marked in comfort, with the bounty of the fields adorning one's home. Instead, Israel is called to celebrate the harvest, the coming of fall, the bounty bestowed by heaven in a ramshackle structure, in a sukkah, a hut or a booth, a fragile religious lean-to that offers almost no shelter at all. It would seem to bespeak not the abundant harvest, but homelessness. My favorite Sukkot story is told in Tablet Magazine by Devorah Klein Lev Tov, who writes, quote, One year on Sukkot, often a chilly holiday in Michigan, the family was huddled in the Sukkot on a Friday night, eating bowls of warm cholent, a slow-simmering stew of meat, potatoes, and beans. Suddenly, two men with guns burst in demanding money, an increasingly common occurrence in Detroit at the time. My mother and her family, having no money with them because it was Shabbat and a Chag, just stared at the men, unsure of what to do next. As the men stared back, one looked at his companion and said, I don't think these people have anything. They're sitting in a hut, eating beans. They've got less than we do. And with that, they left, leaving my mother and her family stunned, grateful. So, you have a Chag, a festival, known as Sukkot, when Jews are called, at a time when it may seem strange, to sit and dwell and celebrate outside their homes. If Sukkot surpassed the understanding of the intruders, it is because what the Bible asks of us at these moments are to take ourselves out of our time and reenact and re-experience something else entirely. To see ourselves with Israel wandering in the desert after the Exodus, without any permanent homes for shelter. Verse 41. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All resident Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what is taking place here is not only remembering, but reenacting, re-experiencing, reliving. The ancient Israelite, who has known nothing but his farm, is suddenly transported to another time when Israel looked to the Almighty directly for food and to providence in the desert for protection. This, in other words, if you will, is time travel. It is an Israelite invention. Mr. Durai, the organizer of the MIT conference, reflected to the media why he remains hopeful for a visitor from the future. He said, quote, Isn't time travel impossible? We can't know for certain. The ancient Greeks would have thought computers were impossible, and the Phoenicians certainly wouldn't have believed that humans would one day send a spacecraft to the moon and back. We cannot predict the future of science or technology, so we can only make an effort and see if any time travelers come to our convention, end quote. Darai is in a certain sense correct that the civilizations of the ancient age could not have conceived of our technological advancements, but maybe there was one people that had actually invented a form of time travel thousands of years ago. For in fact, 
Jews have always believed in the possibility of time travel. The Torah speaks of a powerful covenantal bond between generations that transcends time, that breaks the barriers between past and present, that is transgenerational. In eating unleavened bread for seven days, we are transported back to Egypt and the Exodus. In leaving our homes and sitting in Sukkot, we are suddenly in the wilderness with Moses. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik put it, quote, the Masorah, the process of transmission, symbolizes the Jewish people's outlook regarding the beautiful and resplendent phenomenon of time. The chain of tradition begun millennia ago will continue until the end of all time. Time in this conception is not destructive, all-consuming, and does not simply consist of fleeting, imperceptible moments. The Jew walks alongside Maimonides, listens to Rabbi Akiva. End quote. This is what it means to be a Jew, or as Rabbi Soloveitchik further put it, both past and future become in such circumstances ever-present realities. So Jews, you might say, believe in, invented, time travel. The physicist Paul Davies, who wrote a book called How to Build a Time Machine, suggests that one of the best arguments against time travel is the lack of our noticing what he calls time tourists, people who come from the future to re-experience moments in history. But this, ladies and gentlemen, in Leviticus is time tourism, to observe the Jewish calendar, to recall the redemptive acts of God, to teach about them to our children, is to constantly, covenantally travel to and tour the formative moments of Israel's story. This is biblical sacred time. The holidays, as we have seen, are ideally intended for the Holy Land and the cycle of its seasons. But with the exile, with the destruction of Israelite agriculture, a new form of time travel took place. A holiday such as Sukkot was originally intended to transport an ancient Israelite back in time. But let us consider someone celebrating Sukkot in, say, Detroit, or my own hometown of Chicago, where it was not the end of the harvest, and where the weather was more akin to the Arctic tundra than to a Middle Eastern autumn. For Jews such as this, as well as Jews around the world, to celebrate Sukkot, to experience the unity of time, was also to transport themselves back to the age of the Temple, to the observance of Sukkot in Jerusalem. And that is why exile could never undo the Jewish memory of all that they had once had, and thereby their own identity was preserved. This point was made by Benjamin Disraeli, in his novel Tancred, who, in a fetching passage, describes the Jewish observance of Sukkot. He asks us to picture, as he writes, quote, the child of Israel in the dingy suburb or the squalid quarter of some bleak northern town where there is never a son that can at any rate ripen grapes, yet he must celebrate the vintage of purple Palestine, end quote. Picture to yourself, Disraeli is asking of us, a Jew in northern England or somewhere else in Europe who recalls an ancient harvest festival that took place in the Holy Land long ago. Disraeli further describes an English Jew marking the holiday. Quote, he rises in the morning, goes early to some Whitechapel market, purchases some willow boughs for which he has previously given a commission and which are brought probably from one of the neighboring rivers of Essex, hastens home, cleans out the yard of his miserable tenement, 
builds his bower, decks it even profusely, with the finest flowers and fruits that he can procure, the myrtle and the citron never forgotten, and hangs its roof with variegated lamps. After the service of his synagogue, he sups late with his wife and his children, in the open air, as if he were in the pleasant villages of Galilee, beneath its sweet and starry sky. End quote. And Disraeli concludes by arguing to his audience that a people that in this manner refuses to forget the vintage of the Holy Land will one day regain it. And so it was. In reading about the time travel conference, I noticed an interesting instruction given to those leaving invitations for future time travelers. It was this, quote, Time travel is a hard problem, and it may not be invented until long after MIT has faded into oblivion. Thus, we ask that you include the latitude-longitude information when you publicize the convention, end quote. In fact, long after the ancient glory of Jerusalem had crumbled into dust, Jews were still able to locate the sacred city, to keep it and the land alive in their hearts so that they would one day return and experience an ancient birthright restored. After the scheduled date for the conference, I checked out the convention website to see what had happened. Mr. DeRai could not hide his disappointment. He admitted that, quote, the convention was a mixed success. Unfortunately, we had no confirmed time travelers visit us, end quote. However, he does hold out the hope that perhaps, quote, many time travelers could have attended incognito to avoid endless questions about the future, end quote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest that time travel is an established fact. Only it is to be found not in physics, but in faith. And the proof of its power can be discovered in a land returned to, an Israelite populace restored, part of the future foreseen by the Bible that is now part of the Jewish present. Or, if you will, the Jewish ability to visit its ever-living past has brought it back, back to the future. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.